Tonight, uh, like Ryan said, we're finishing It's a Trap. We're talking about uh, fame. Um, and I think for a lot of y'all, y'all already kind of have an idea of fame as being, you know, people like LeBron James or Tiger Woods, these, these guys of great status and great success and great wealth. But what I'm going to be talking about tonight, what we're going to get into tonight, is not necessarily fame from like a famous people standpoint, but just the nature of what fame does in our hearts. And so before I get started, I'm going to pray. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that tonight, God, these would be your words and not mine, God, that I would completely get out of the way. God, that each of us would, would take ourselves out of the way, God, and allow you to change and shape us, God, in the ways that you're hoping to tonight, God, that we would be um, humble and, and understanding, God, that we have it in no way together, God, and that you have something for us tonight. Amen. So if you would, grab a Bible if you need a Bible, and open up to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, and when you get there, give me a, mm-hmm, that was fast for some of you. I need at least one, mm-hmm. Does anybody have a real Bible in their hands? Matthew 4. Matthew 4, yes. It starts the New Testament, Matthew, and you're going to go to the fourth chapter of Matthew, in the first verse of that chapter. And we've been talking about this account in Matthew where the devil comes and tempts Jesus. The setting is that Jesus goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And basically when Jesus is at his weakest point of, of hunger, the devil comes to him and begins to say, okay, well, if you're so hungry and you're the son of God, like just, just command the stones to become bread and you can eat. But what we see each time as we've been going through this series is that Jesus has a rebuttal or Jesus has a refute or Jesus has an answer for every temptation the enemy throws at him. And tonight's no different. But just for context, I'm going to read again through this section here. But I want you to pay especially attention to verses 8 through 10. So it says this in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. The tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here's where we're going to stay tonight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended him. And so we've been going through this series, and we've been talking about the traps that the enemy throws at us and the truth of God that dispels those traps. And the fourth trap that the enemy wants us to buy into is that Satan wants us to worry more about the opinion of the world than the opinion of God. See, he sets Jesus up, and I I, I see it like this, you know, it's this supernatural way where Jesus is able to see all of the world. He's probably looking into the future. He's seeing future nations. And the devil says to him, okay, I'm going to make you ruler of all of this if you'll just bow to me. 
And in the face of, of notoriety, in the face of fame, in the face of being well-known, well-regarded, being king of the world, Jesus says, no, I choose God's world more. I choose God instead. And so the first thing I want to do is kind of define what fame is. Because like I said, I think for a lot of us, we might think of famous people and we don't necessarily equate ourselves with fame. But fame is, is our dependence on the world's opinion. Faith affects everything. Fame is the reason why I dress the way I dress tonight. Like I put on nice jeans and a nice t-shirt because I want y'all to think that I have it somewhat together. Fame is the reason why uh, you, you know, get your schoolwork done on time so you don't look like a slacker. Or fame is the reason why you go to parties that you get invited to because you want to be a part of the crowd that invited you. Fame affects much more than just the sense of popularity. So if, if you're sitting out there right now and you're saying, like, Cole, you know, I don't necessarily strive to be popular. Like, this doesn't matter to me. I promise you that fame is impacting you somewhere because fame affects everything. It majorly shapes our, our lives. And one of the toughest things about fame that I want us to grasp tonight is that fame is based solely off the appraisal of someone else. I can say that I'm popular but my popularity is only legitimized in you agreeing and you seeing and feeling like Cole is popular. If you don't buy into that, if you don't believe I'm popular, then I'm not popular. Even down the context of success. Like if I'm successful, I can admit that I'm successful or if I was successful, I could admit that I'm successful. But you're not successful unless people deem it a, a, a venue or a venture worth being success, successed over. Think about it like this. You have... You have doctors and scientists right now who are doing insanely miraculous things in the field of medicine and chemicals and all this kind of stuff that a lot of us probably never know about. But then you have a doctor who comes along with a new diet plan, and he's over every single talk show circuit because what people care about determines the value of his success, determines the value. And so right from the beginning, one of the hardest things and, and toughest things I want us to get and buy into is that when we're struggling with fame, we're depending our value based off of somebody else's opinion of us. And I think for some of us, as we now kind of have an idea of what fame is, you might be asking me, okay, well, Cole, why does that matter? Does, does, if I you know, want to be popular, why is that a big deal? If I want to uh, be well-liked, why is that a big deal? And the reason why it's a big deal is that fame in the hands of us falls short every single time, that us worrying more about the world's opinion of us than God's opinion of us matters greatly, that yes, Jesus could have probably handled that because he is perfect, but we are not perfect, and so us focusing on fame falls short every single time. It causes you to make decisions that you normally wouldn't make or that you probably weren't going to make in the same timeline that you made them. I think about it like this, or, or case in point number one is, you know, you go to a party and somebody offers you a drink, and your first reaction in your mind is, well, I don't want to drink because, you know, like first and foremost, I probably don't like the taste, like beer doesn't taste good, I don't want to drink the beer, but because other people are drinking, or because I want to be known as somebody who's willing to take a drink or have fun with the group, you might, you know, accept the drink offer. Or if you're hanging out with friends at somebody's house and somebody brings out something to smoke with and you maybe have never smoked before, you don't have any desire to smoke, but just because you want to be known as somebody who's willing to try something new or, or fit in with this particular group, fame has forced you into you know, something new, something that you didn't want to be a part of. Or one that 
you know, it's, it's, it's so hard because it was in no way um, an issue or a reality that existed when I was a kid because the technology wasn't there. But, you know, fame is what causes you to send pictures of yourself to somebody when it's late at night and you're wearing, you know, a bikini or you're wearing something less than a bikini because fame has forced you to desire to be desired. You want to be, you want to be legitimized and, and people saying back to you, man, you're so good looking, you're so hot, man, I want to be with you. And like that, that need for their approval has forced you to make a decision outside of God's plan for you. And right in there lies just the biggest issue with this trap is that if we care more about what the world thinks of us than what God thinks of us, we're going to be far more likely to choose what the world would have for us than what God would have for us. And what God has for us, if we believe in him, is perfect and great and good and holy. And what the world has for us, what I want to show us tonight, is the opposite of that. It's, it's finite. It, it doesn't last. It doesn't, it doesn't change us the way that God's opinion of us does. The other reason why fame affects us negatively is because it'll never be enough. I've had the opportunity to speak a few times and a few times I've spoken, I feel like I share similar stories because in a lot of ways, I would say that I have a very much experienced driven wisdom on fame. I was very, very popular throughout middle school and high school. I was well-known. I was well-liked. And fame for me in my past was a huge, huge vice for the enemy. It was a trap that I fell into all the time. I've shown y'all, if y'all were here last time, pictures before, where I shaved my entire head and eyebrows just because I thought that it would make people think I'm funnier or more ridiculous or weirder. And so fame caused me to act outside of what I would probably be hoping to do. Or on the football field, I remember when I would play a scout team as a freshman and the, D, the offensive line that I was going against, the seniors would say, hey, just take it easy because, you know, we're just doing practice. Don't, you know, don't go too hard. I wanted their approval of me, so I went easy. I went soft. And what the coaches saw was that Cole was not good. He was soft. He was not talented. And so I cared more about the approval of the people around me than probably the approval that mattered with my coaches. And so I, I stand here right now, you know, versed in the subject and knowing that fame is never enough. If you start drinking because you want to be popular, what happens when everybody's drinking? You know, you're just now one of the people who drink. Fame dictates at that point that you have to step it up even further. You know, I have to drink more. I have to drink harder alcohols. I have to drink something different than everybody else so that I I stand above and continue down this fame track that's going to leave you not where you want to be. I think another huge issue of fame is the misbalance between what God has for us and what the world would have for us. I think about it like this. If I'm more concerned for what the world thinks than what God thinks, I'm going to be far less likely to act in what God would have for me. The way that I see this largely in my life and in my experiences is on the mission field. When I go on mission trips, all sense of what people think goes out the window. And I'm so on fire for what God is going to do and on fire for what God has for me there that I am more willing to step more boldly, to talk more confidently, to be more miraculous, be more strange and weird for the sake of Christ than I would be in the, you know, the environments of my friends or the environments of my home. Because when I get out there, those people don't know me. That you know, It doesn't matter what they think about me. And so we see a misbalance between what God would have for us and what the world would have for us. I think another thing that it does that I think in this room in particular is so heavy is that it, it, 
it delegitimizes our relationship with God. It, it works in the opposite direction of what God would have for us if we're concerned with more of what the world thinks about us. The way that I see this show up the most is in this series, we've had this opportunity over here on the left or y'all's right for this butcher paper wall where we've been writing down the traps in our lives or the things that the devil or the enemy has been throwing at us, these, these areas in our lives of strain and struggle. And for a student ministry of over 200 like we have, that wall is relatively empty. That your fear of what people might think if you're willing to write what's really going on in your life stops you from writing what's really going on in your life. And I know that that's true because, again, as we pray over your prayer cards every single week, what I see is that you are far more willing to be vulnerable and authentic and real with what you know isn't going to be seen by everybody else. And I don't say that to say that, like, if you don't write something up there, you're a worse Christian or, or God honors it less. But if we really buy into God's opinion of us, which as Ashley said was, was exclaimed boldly at Easter that his opinion of us is that we were so valuable that he would choose himself to die in our place. If we hold to that, then we would be far less concerned with what people think and far more willing to own up to the things in our lives. And I, and I, and I say that from no point of superiority. When I walked to write what I wrote over there on the, butcher, on the wall, there was a moment of pause in me where I said, no, I cannot I can't write that. I can't write what's really going on in my heart because what if a student saw me a leader struggling with what I'm struggling with? But in that moment, I was able to you know, push through because God was, was pressing on my heart and so I wrote what was really true and I felt all the more relieved and grace poured all the more into my heart for, the, for, for doing that. And what I've come to realize is now when I look over to that wall, it becomes a celebration in my heart because not only do I see what God's been doing and working on in my life, but I see what God's doing in the lives of each and every one of us. I think we have this belief as Christians that in a room full of Christians, we shouldn't be struggling with anything. That as Christians, we should have it together. If we believe God's changed our life, then our life should look different all the time. And it should look great all the time. And it should never have anything wrong with it. But the very moment of our belief in God was us also acknowledging that we were imperfect that the very act of God's grace happens because we weren't good enough. The very moment of God's sacrifice was because we couldn't do it. So we can celebrate together on the wall publicly what we're struggling with because we can believe fully that what God's opinion matter or that God's opinion matters and not the world's. So understanding kind of the downfalls of <clears throat> understanding the downfalls of fame helps me then to decide, okay, well, what's next? You know, like, Cole, how do, I, how do I fight against this? How do I, what do I do to give up this dependence I have on the opinion of people around me or the opinion of the world? And I think first and foremost, one of the things I'm excited about is just talking from a very practical level. You know, in a room like we have tonight, like there's some of you here that, you know, maybe you've never received Christ or never believed in God or just here investigating. And for some of you, you know, you've been following Jesus for a while. But in either circumstance, what we're about to talk about matters or it, it makes sense or it is real, it connects. Because what we're about to talk about is just based off of how it is. Like it's not, it's not something God determined, it's like just how it is. So first and foremost, the reason why we can fight against this or how we can fight against this is that you can decide in your mind that it doesn't matter. That what people think doesn't matter. And I know that's easy for me to stay, say right now 
up here, and I get that it's, it's hard to picture this, but if there's another thing that I wish that you would just buy into fully is that it really, really doesn't matter. If I could start over right now as a sixth grader, I would be fully myself all the way through school. I would not feel this sense of I needed to be a better version of me or a different version of me to get people to like me. I would just be Cole. But what I know to be true for you guys is that the world around you seems so permanent, and it's not. Even, even the timeline of graduating is going to dispel that issue of, of worrying what people think about you. When I graduated high school, I went on to college at the University of Florida, go Gators, and I graduated with 27 students from my, from my, from my graduating class from Fletcher. And so on a, you know, on a very real level, I went with a lot of friends from high school to college. But what I very quickly picked up on in college is that it doesn't matter anymore. Like, I didn't go to college and say, like, hey, I'm Cole, senior class president of Fletcher High School. How's it going? Like, I'm the cool kid. Hey, how are y'all? And, you know, you're, you're in lecture halls with 300 students, and you're on a class with 36,000 students. So suddenly that small world doesn't exist anymore, and so the opinion of the people in that small world don't matter anymore. Even if you don't go on to college, just getting out of that bubble of, of high school and middle school, getting out of that zone you're going to very quickly realize that it didn't matter what people thought of you. It doesn't matter what people think of you. And so first and foremost, just understand that like the timeline right now for you guys is super finite. That, you know, if you're a sixth grader, you have seven years until you're out of here and on to college or on to the next thing. And, and no longer will the opinion of the people around you matter. Or if you're a senior, like you're just a few months away from that. I think another way that we kind of fight against this is we realize how stupid it is to care what people think. The reason why I say it's stupid is because if I base my value off the opinion of somebody else, what happens when their opinions change? What happens when their desires change? What happens when their sentiment of me or their desire for what I am or to be or any version of me, when they change what they want and I base off what they want, then I have to change. I think about it like this. like If you sat here on top of this table a Chick-fil-A number one sandwich meal with a large fry, half and half sweet tea, four Chick-fil-A sauces, and two srirachas. And right now, I can look at that and not really care because I'm, I'm not hungry. My determinant of value for food depends solely on how hungry I am. And I know a lot of y'all think that Ryan is the one that loves Chick-fil-A, but I was baptized in Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, I've grown with it and, and, and bred it in the, in the patties by Justin and Nick. Like, I know what my heart has for Chick-fil-A when I'm hungry. But when I am not hungry, like, Chick-fil-A doesn't bother me. So the same thing is true. If, if I'm concerned with what Nicole thinks of me, and Nicole is ridiculous and crazy, and one day Nicole wants me to be this, and the next day Nicole wants me to be this, like, where am I ever going to find stability in that? And one of the biggest things that we see in Scripture and from God is that his opinion of us is constant, from the very beginning of time till whenever he redeems us again and ongoing into eternity, God has said that we were worth the sacrifice of himself. That's never changed. And yet we want to or desire to or hold on to the opinion of people around us for whatever reason, even though it's so fleeting. I think another way that we get away from worrying about what people think, one second, is that we stop desiring the label or the title. When I was in school, my desire to be known as the kid who was funny or ridiculous or weird or crazy 
well-liked, forced a lot of my decisions. And what I began to realize is that title or that notion of being this kid who was funny, weird, ridiculous, awesome, all kind of things like that, forced me to do increasingly weird and things like that. And so the same thing is true in any environment. As I said earlier, if I say yes to somebody offering me something to drink and I drink, I'm now, in my mind, I've labeled myself as somebody who drinks at parties. And what you'll find is it's so much harder for you now to say no in the future because they're like, oh, well, you drank last weekend. Like, why are you trying not to drink? And so if we would just stop with even the attempt of labeling ourselves or the attempt of legitimizing ourselves and how we want to be perceived, we'll be far less victimized or far less devoted to that title. I think another way that we fight is, is just completely shown here in this passage. And that's that we fight with Scripture. Every single time the enemy comes to Jesus, he quotes Scripture to Jesus, and sometimes he even quotes it slightly incorrectly. And Jesus' response every single time is to either quote it correctly or quote a different verse back to him and basically say, no, no, it is written actually this. It is written actually this. And so one way that I don't want us to overlook is that there is tremendous, tremendous strength and power in this book. I think that another word for trap that the enemy throws at us would be a trial. And one of the things that the Bible says about trials in James 1, it says that, for for consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that testing your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and blameless, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without restraint to those who ask, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the ones who doubt is like a man or a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's a scripture that I've devoted into my heart because it is a, it is a sword that I fight with constantly. When I face trials, when I face issues in my life, my mind goes right to that scripture, and I'm all the more encouraged for it. We fight with scripture. I think another thing that we have to see here is that in this passage, you see how Jesus fights is that he is unrelenting. The devil comes at him with one thing, Jesus refutes with another. He comes at him with three other things, and he refutes with three other things as well. And one of the verses I think kind of gets lost in this passage that's so, so powerful if we would grab onto is verse 11. It says, then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. See, I know where y'all are at because I've been in the same place, or I'm still in the same place in some ways. And in your mind right now, you're saying to me, Cole, you don't understand, like, the temptation to do blank is too hard for me to say no to. Because eventually, I'm going to have to say yes. You know, if I say no to this person asking me to send a picture tonight, somebody else is going to ask for a picture two weeks from now. So I might as well just give in now. Or if I refuse the first offer of a drink, they're just going to keep offering it, so I might as well just give in the first time. But that's not true. What, what the Bible tells us here tonight is that if we're willing to fight to the end, the enemy will give up. He will leave. The enemy realizes he's not going to dupe Jesus. He realizes he's never going to get through and, and ruin God's plan for Jesus, and so he just leaves. And I know for some of us, Like, the idea that I'm never going to struggle with this again seems impossible. But I now stand before you today, like, I still like to be liked, but, like, it is in no way 
the dark area in my heart that it was when I was a kid. And so I know that while as a kid I thought, you know, I'll be worrying about this forever, I no longer worry about it. And so there is truth that, like, if we're willing to fight to the very end, God will prevail. And I think the last way we fight is that we, te- or we trust in the truth and not the trap. See, the truth that we have, the truth number four, is that the kingdoms of the world will fall away, but God's kingdom is eternal. The kingdoms of the world will fall away, but God's kingdom is eternal. Just, just logically, what that means is that if we are with God, our eternity is set with God. If we are in God's kingdom, then we are with eternity, with God in that kingdom. And yet we, time and time again, allow ourselves to be swayed, allow ourselves to be affected, allow ourselves to be saddened and hurt and changed by a world that is passing away. As I said earlier, the world of high school is passing away as you graduate. But also this world that we live in today that's broken and hard and filled with people that hurt us, it's passing away as well. And so why would we choose to live for this world? In light of what God could do with our eternity, why would we choose to live for this world? You see, because, because God secured our eternity. He secured our eternity. As Ashley said earlier tonight, when we look back to Easter a week ago, Easter is a celebration of God basically saying forevermore our eternity was secure. That forevermore our value was secure. That forevermore God's opinion of us was that it was worth the sacrifice of himself. That he decided as he looked to our generation and every generation before us and every generation and after us and every single sin that every single generation combined would commit and every single act outside of God's will. God looked at all of that and decided that his death was still worth it. That he'd rather die than see us separated from him for eternity. And I think tonight for some of you, That's a shock. Or maybe that's something that you've heard before, but you've never, you've never given it a chance. And the last thing I want to do tonight is give you that chance. That if the idea of God's eternity being forever securing your value, as opposed to the world's right now, forever shifting and changing and your value shifting and changing in the midst of what the world desires for you. If for the first time tonight, you want God's grace to reign in your heart and you want God's forgiveness to pour over you. See, because the, the ugly truth of Easter is that the sacrifice had to be made. Because we had acted outside of God's will There was a gap formed between us and God. And so Easter was God's rebuilding of that bridge and reconnecting of that gap. And that's God basically making a way for us to be with him. But that way only happens through Jesus. And so tonight, I want to give you a chance to be a part 
of that way, to be a part of that sacrifice, to be a part of what God has done for generations and generations and generations in the heart of believers. And come to that conclusion for yourself as well. And so if you would, just, just bow your heads right where you're at and close your eyes right where you're at. And if for you, for the very first time, you want God to be the Lord of your life, you want that forgiveness, you want your eternity to be secure in his eternity, I want you to pray with me. And my words aren't special. Me praying for you isn't special. It's about what you believe in your heart and what you want to be true in your life. But if that is you, if you want that salvation, I'd ask that you would pray with me. Heavenly Father God, God, I acknowledge that I have failed. I know that on the cross, God, your death was necessary. Necessary because of the issues and the gaps that I had formed. But God, I ask you now, God, for that forgiveness. God, and I praise you, Father, for your sacrifice. God, I ask that you would be Lord of my life. And that my eternity would be secure in your eternity, in your kingdom. God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So the last thing that we're going to do tonight is we're going to respond in worship. And I don't know where this hit you tonight. Because for me, it's, it's, this was, this was a, a subject that I know if I was you, or as I was you once, that it would be particularly difficult for me to imagine a world where I didn't care what people think about me. But we don't have to anymore. God's eternity, God's opinion, God's value in us is secure and stable. Why would we ever turn back to a world where it's not? And so whether it's writing what it is that you're struggling with over there on the butcher paper wall, whether it's coming up front to the altar and just getting real with God about the areas in your life that you know that fame is just taking you way off course. Maybe it means that you're going to say no to going to that party altogether next Friday. Maybe it means you miss out on some things that sound like they're fun because you know it's an environment that's going to cause you to step away from what God would have for you. But if we're more concerned about God's opinion of us than the world's opinion of us, then choosing to act outside of what the world would want for us doesn't matter. Because we are secure in the knowledge in that moment that we're choosing God's opinion of us more. So choose God and leave the world behind.